Is it bad vibes, evil energy, trapped souls? What is it that makes one place seem to attract more tragedy than others? At what point do you bring out the Palo Santo and call a priest? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm someone who tends to see the glass as half empty, so it's hard for me to imagine that there isn't a square foot of land in the U.S., or anywhere, really, that doesn't have some awful past. And so, if bad luck is due to the history of a place, I guess it makes sense why everything sort of feels like bad luck these days. For the Dudgeon family, it's hard to know if they brought the bad luck with them or just happened to settle on a particularly unlucky parcel of land. I should mention, strangers, that today's story contains some references to suicide, so please take care. We talk a lot about old, cursed places here on Strange and Unexplained. The older the place, the more likely it seems to be cursed. Also, as if the longer something's been around the more opportunities there have been for bad juju to stick to it. In that case, thank God, the Strange and Unexplained Patreon is new. No bad juju over there, just loads of more stories to leave you scratching your head. Like, who buried a bunch of tiny fairy coffins on the side of a hill in Scotland? Or how do people just suddenly wake up from years-long comas as if nothing happened? We don't have all the answers, but we do have the wild stories. Every month, we are putting out three bonus episodes, plus ad-free versions of our weekly regular episodes. So come check us out at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained. In 1903, Charles and Alice Dudgeon settled in Holton, Michigan after moving from Indiana. In 1905, two years after Meaty, the youngest of their five children, was born, the family pulled up stakes and moved again. This time, they traded their farm in Holton for 1,208 acres in a place called White Cloud. Listen, I don't know how big an acre is, and I don't know why we have to have a whole other system of measurement for land, but 1,208 acres is a lot of land. Enough that the previous owners had left it open for other ranchers to graze their cattle. But not the Dudgeons. While the family of seven lived in a temporary shack, Charles and Alice and their son Lee fenced the property off so that only their cattle could graze. They raised breeder livestock, which, by the way, is also what we queer people call straight people behind closed doors. Don't get too offended. I am also breeder livestock. The neighbors retaliated by cutting the fence and letting the Dudgeon's livestock out. In fairness, the neighbors may have already had a gripe with the Dudgeons. According to Lee W. Keipel of the Nuego County Historical Society Archives, quote, there was a certain amount of resentment and jealousy in the rural community caused by the Dudgeon attitude and being able to purchase such a large parcel of land. The Dudgeons were one of the first to own a new electric truck, end quote. But it seems the Dudgeons either spent all their money on that truck or considered their house an afterthought because, as Keipel wrote, they built, quote, a two-story house with a porch containing four rooms, two downstairs and two upstairs. The floors were made of rough ash board and the partitions between the rooms were very crude and covered with sheets of newspaper. The stairs leading upstairs were so steep they could be considered a ladder 
The rough boards outside were covered with tar paper and strips of lathe. The family moved into the house before the windows or doors were installed. The house was never finished, end quote. So, you know, not a palace, and definitely not the warmest introduction to their neighbors, who didn't seem willing to give them much of a chance anyway. The Dudgeons' bullishness and hard-headedness didn't win them any favor either, and the neighbors began referring to their ranch as Dudgeon Swamp. I mean, some of the land was pretty swampy, but would you want a swamp named after your family? Within their first few years there, Charles bought another parcel of land of 80 acres about a quarter mile away for his daughter Lola and her husband Frank Priest. But for some reason, and without telling Charles, Frank sold the land to a man named Jake Trewilliger, who had been previously confronted by Charles and Lee for pulling logs off their land. Charles and Lee severely beat Trewilliger, and both spent 90 days in jail for it. In another incident, Lee and his brother Wilbur got into a physical fight with a neighbor for crossing through their property. Both brothers were convicted and served jail time. You know that show, Fear Thy Neighbor? If only TV existed back then. Woof. So let's move on to a, hopefully, less toxic member of the Dudgeon family. By 1918, the youngest Dudgeon, Meaty, was 16 and had dropped out of school to go to work, which was, by the way, not at all uncommon at the time. Free high school was still a relatively new thing, and by 1900, only 10% of American teens Meaty's age went to high school. I can't imagine the number was much higher 18 years later. Anyway, that's not really important, except I thought I should point out that dropping out of school at 16 was pretty much the norm. Just to say that at least with this one thing, Meaty was just regular. Two years later, in 1920, Meaty met 26-year-old Romy Doc Hodel, a recent transplant to White Cloud, when he bought some cedar fence posts from the Dudgeons. Romy was a stumper, someone who was paid to remove tree stumps from farmers' fields in the wake of lumber barons laying waste to acres and acres of forest because... Who needs stupid trees anyway? Apparently, Romy moved to White Cloud because stumpin', as it was called, because of course it was, was easier there than where he'd been. It doesn't matter. I just like that there used to be a profession called stumpin'. Meaty and Romy married in March of 1921, and Romy quickly made it known that he was the very jealous type. In particular, Romy didn't like Meaty hanging out with a man named Carl Sailors. Apparently, Meaty's brother Wilmer worked for Carl, and he and Meaty had, quote, kept company, which honestly could either have meant they sometimes happened to sit in the same room as each other, there were, after all, only four rooms in the house, played cards together, or full-on fucked in the hayloft. I have no idea. Whatever it was, Romy was not having it. Oddly, around this time, a man named Robert Bennett went to work for the Dudgeons as a farmhand, and as far as I can tell, Romy didn't seem too worked up about him, which leads me to believe that he may have at least had some real reason to be jealous of Carl Sailors. At any rate, less than a year after Romy and Meaty were married, in late January 1923, Romy got a letter from his mother back in Detroit basically saying, I've had it with your father, so I've sent him to live with you. And literally, the next day, Romy's father, 67-year-old David Hodel, showed up. 
But then, only two weeks later, Mr. Hodel dropped dead, walking back into the house from the woodpile. The initial cause of death was noted as apoplexy, or what today we call a stroke. He was buried four days after that on the Dudgeon's property, where it's likely there was a family plot. There usually was on large farms. But it's still a little strange to me that his wife didn't want him buried in Detroit, where they'd lived together. I guess she really had had it with him. Two days after burying Hodel, Romy and Meaty moved to a different property owned by Jake Trewilliger, the man the Dudgeons had accused of stealing their lumber. Apparently, the couple had basically been renting to own before Romy's stumpin' business faltered. Either he'd overestimated the need for stumpers in the area, or stumpetition was fierce. I'm so sorry. So he and Meaty moved, presumably to a cheaper place. But by that point, Romy was $1,800, or more than $30,000 in today money, in debt. So, in the span of less than one month, Meaty and Romy had an in-law move in and die, and they had to move because of massive debt. The three most stressful things a person goes through are death of a loved one, moving, and financial strain. This is a lot of stress for any couple to be in, but it's especially a lot for relative newlyweds. So I suppose it's not all that surprising that by May, Romy was super unstable. That doesn't excuse his shitty behavior, of course, but I'm going to go ahead and assume this man didn't have, you know, therapy. On May 5th, 1922, Romy sent a man who worked for him to sell a horse to a neighbor. The neighbor didn't want to buy the horse, which led to Romy grabbing his rifle and going to shoot the neighbor. Because that makes sense. Listen, I don't know how you deal with someone turning down an unprompted offer to buy your horse, but clearly Romy thought shooting him was the correct way to handle that particular situation. Fortunately, Meaty disagreed and managed to talk Romy out of murdering the neighbor over a horse. But you know what they say... You can take a man's gun, but you can't give him common sense. It's a very famous saying. Don't Google it. Later that same day, Romy had Meaty's brothers Lee and Herman come by to help them pack up for a temporary move to a shack 17 miles away while he was off on a stumpin' job. It seems that this was something of a surprise to Meaty and possibly wasn't planned ahead of time. Maybe Romy was so fired up about the horse incident that he just announced to Meaty that he'd be moving her 17 miles away that afternoon. According to the archives piece, quote, Meaty had accompanied him on other jobs and disliked living in a shack away from family and friends, end quote. Can you believe this lady? I mean, the gall. While they were packing up the truck for the move, old Carl Saylor showed up over which Romy, ever the level-headed guy, flew into another rage, suspecting sailors had actually been showing up all along while Romy was at work to make whoopee with his wife. For some reason, though, Romy ended up in a fistfight with the Dudgeon brothers, Lee and Herman, rather than with sailors, and was pretty badly beaten. So, of course, Romy took his humiliation out on Meaty. He made her walk home in the rain ahead of him. I don't really get that one, but it's in the archive piece. And then he ranted about how they would die together, but also that he wanted a divorce. I'm pretty sure the term, yes, dear, was invented for men like this. He didn't like my horse, huh? Well, I'll show him. 
Yes, dear. Are you doing the horizontal hokey pokey with that man? Yes, dear. That's it. We're getting divorced. Yes, dear. The next day, May 6th, it was still raining, which everybody knows is nasty weather for stumpin', so Romy didn't go to work. He and Meaty had spent the night at the Dudgeons the night before, and Alice Dudgeon was expecting him back before breakfast after he went to his rented barn on the Trewilliger property to feed his horses. When Romy didn't return, Lee Dudgeon and Robert Bennett, the farmhand who worked for the Dudgeons and or for Romy, depending on the source, went to look for him at the barn and found him hanging from a harness beam, apparently having killed himself. Lee gathered Meaty and Herman, and the three drove into town to notify the authorities just after noon. He also handed over a couple of suicide notes he said he'd found. The first was written on a calendar. It read, Dearest Meaty, I cannot write words to the effect that I want to, but tell my mother not to feel bad for me, or you either. I left a note in my book for you, but my emotion has changed since then, so I am writing you this. Please don't marry Carl Sailors, my last request. One who give his life for you, Duck. The second was found on a piece of notebook paper. That one read, Maida, when you read this, I will be no more. Don't look for me as you will never find me until it is too late. You know I told you I would rather be dead to see you go wrong. One who loves you. Doc. Authorities rushed to the scene and were struck by a few pieces of incongruent evidence. First, Romy was essentially standing with his legs on the ground, which is, needless to say, not typically how one finds a body that died in that particular manner. And two, according to the archives piece, quote, one eye was blackened, his lip was cut, and there was a cut over one eye and another on his cheek. It was also noted that there was evidence of mud or sand on his shoulders, end quote. And then, at the post-mortem examination, it was determined that the cause of death had been blunt force trauma to the back of his head behind his right ear. The blow would have killed him instantly. So, unless this man beat himself up or had some kind of epic and spectacular fall and then hit himself so hard on the back of his own head that he was killed instantly before hanging himself on a beam that was so low his feet were touching the ground, this dude definitely didn't die by suicide. The following day, May 7th, Romy was buried in a cemetery in town where, quote, because of the hard feelings between the Hodels and Dudgeons, Sheriff Noble A. McKinley frisked the participants for weapons, end quote. So now we've got Romy's father, David Hodel, buried on the Dudgeon property, nowhere near his widow, and Romy Hodel buried in a local cemetery nowhere near his father or his widow. It's possible Meaty may have been like, I've had it with him, the same way Romy's mother had had it with her husband. Perhaps the Hodels were so repugnant, their surviving spouses didn't even want anything to do with them in death. On May 10th, Sheriff Noble McKinley announced to the press that he believed Romy had not died by suicide, but rather had been attacked and the killer or killers had tried to stage the scene to make it look like a suicide. In fact, two men had already been arrested in connection to the case, one of whom was Robert Bennett, the farmhand. 
And then, five days later, on the 15th, the official inquest concluded and found that the, quote, suicide notes given to the authorities by Lee Dudgeon were not in Romy's handwriting. Mrs. Nina Hodel, Romy's mother, and Roy Cook, Romy's brother-in-law, testified that the suicide notes were not written in Romy's handwriting, end quote. Meanwhile, one suspect, Robert Bennett, had been released from jail, and the citizens of White Cloud were not pleased. Sentiment around town was that law enforcement was too lax and someone was going to pay for the murder of Romy Hodel. Not only that, but the Dudgeons hadn't exactly bought themselves any goodwill with their neighbors over the years. And so, on July 31st, 19 of these concerned citizens, including the superintendent of schools, Paul Andrews, did what concerned citizens of a certain ilk do. They respectfully went to their local representatives and calmly but firmly stated their concerns. Ha 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 JK. They formed a vigilante mob and set out to find Lee and Herman Dudgeon and coax a confession out of them with ropes around their necks. The mob found the brothers on a road outside of town moving some farm equipment for a neighbor and forced them to the ground where, as superintendent of schools Paul Andrews would later recount, that, quote, when the rope was pulled tight around Lee Dudgeon's neck, he said he would confess. When the rope was loosened, he refused to confess, end quote. Could you imagine finding out the superintendent of your school district was part of a vigilante mob? Actually, scratch that. Some of you probably need to ask your school district superintendent where he was on January 6th. Anyway. When tightening and loosening the ropes with their hands wasn't working, Romy's brother Forrest tied the ropes to his motorcycle and rode until the rope was taut. The vigilante mob tactics seemed to work when, apparently, after only five minutes, in which they received black eyes, a broken nose, and lots of rope burn, the Dudgeon brothers wrote and signed this confession. I, Lee Dudgeon, don't know how Adi Hodel was murdered, but I do know that he was murdered by Robert Bennett. My brother Herman and myself helped hang R.D. Hodel in the upper story of Jake Tuelaga's barn after he was killed. Bennett came to our place and asked us to go with him. I asked what for, and he said he wanted us to hang Doc in the barn. I told him I didn't wish to do anything of the kind, and he said, If you don't, I will put you fellas in the same place. He had his hand in his coat pocket where his gun was concealed, and we went with him. After hanging Doc up, Bennett said, By God, he won't bother anybody else. A few members of the mob signed the confession as witnesses and brought it to the local justice of the peace slash undertaker. But once with authorities, the Dudgeon brothers recanted and said they'd only made the confession under the threat of death by the mob. The Dudgeons were released and Robert Bennett was immediately rearrested. The police may have bought the Dudgeons recanting, but the general public did not. And so, on August 5th, state police were sent to the Dudgeons' home to protect them from vigilantes. It didn't take long, however, before the de facto bodyguards turned to eyeing the Dudgeons as the real culprits. I don't know what it was that changed their minds. The Dudgeons don't seem like the sharpest cookies in the tool shed, though, so I wouldn't be surprised if they just openly talked about their involvement with the police four feet away. It could have also just been the cut of their jibs. Who knows? 
And so, just three days after they'd arrived to protect the Dudgeons, the police decided to put them under arrest again and loaded Lee and Herman into their car and brought them to Big Rapids, which sounds like a really fun water park, but is just the name of a town. Here, police interrogated them until the brothers recanted their recant and canted all over again. This time, though, Lee and Herman said it was actually their sister Meaty who'd killed Romy. And not only that, they also implicated her in the death of Romy's father, David Hodel, as well. Apparently, Meaty had said something like, The old man would still be alive if he hadn't drunk his coffee. That incriminating statement, coupled with some other clue that isn't explicitly spelled out anywhere I could find, made police suspect Meaty had poisoned her father-in-law. So on August 9th, police hauled Meaty down to Big Rapids, but stopped the car on the way and asked what she'd put in Hodel's coffee. Meaty didn't reply until one of the officers suggested that maybe Hodel had been too needy. Meaty allegedly replied, Yes, the old man was lots of care. She then allegedly admitted to putting some poison she'd found in the house in her father-in-law's coffee. Once they got to the station, Meaty made an official confession to the same effect. The next day, Alice Dudgeon confessed to murdering Romy and to knowing that her daughter had poisoned David Hodel. Not only that, but along with this drib-drab of confessions the Dudgeons were making, Alice and Meaty also let police know they'd been bothered by ghosts. Just, you know, as an FYI. Put a pin in that one for now. On August 12th, Meaty's statement was released to the press. The Sioux City Journal printed this, quote, David Hodel, 67, was a weak old man who tried to do his bit around the farmhouse of his son, Romy Hodel, in Nuego, but did not please his daughter-in-law, for he required too much attention. For that reason, she confessed, I decided he would be better off dead. I placed a spoonful of arsenic in his coffee at noon, and a short time later he fell as he started to open the door with an armful of wood. He died in a few minutes. The young woman, she is 21, continued, saying that she told her mother and brothers, but did not tell her husband. End quote. Meaty's confession continued. We had been fighting and quarreling, and Romy was lying on a cot. I picked up a black-handed rolling pin and struck him twice at the base of the brain as he slept. I then felt rather sorry and laid down by his side. He was still shivering, and brother, who was nearby, struck him again. You call it shivering, I call it convulsing. Tomato, tomato. Lee was called by mother, and he called Herman and Bennett. We finally decided to hang the body to a rafter in the barn. The boys placed the body in a wagon and drove to the barn. In the barn, according to Meaty, the men staged the suicide and then drove into town to alert the police. Three days later, on August 15th, six months after he'd been buried, David Hodel's body was exhumed for further inspection to see if there was indeed poison in his system. And then on August 24th, Alice, Meaty, Lee, and Herman Dudgeon recanted their recanting of the recant they'd recanted and said they'd only canted in the first place because they were coerced. Meanwhile, David Hodel's autopsy revealed his organs had in them, quote, enough strychnine poisoning to kill a dozen men, end quote. But not women, because I guess women have a way of shutting that whole thing down. Meaty's trial for the murder of her father-in-law began on October 10th. Her lawyer, Arthur Penny, argued that Meaty's confession had been coerced, 
The method of coercion, you ask? Why, the police officers dressed up as ghosts. Go ahead and rewind and play that again if you need to. Penny claimed that when Alice and Meaty told police they'd been bothered by ghosts, the police came up with a plan to dress up as ghosts to scare a confession out of them. On two separate occasions, a police officer brought a dudgeon or two out to the barn at which Romy's body had been found and questioned them while two other officers wearing white sheets, for a different reason than usual, somehow appeared to float above them, moaning and groaning. At one point, one of the ghosts pointed an accusing finger at Lee Dudgeon, like the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And then, far more seriously, the troopers put a rope around Lee Dudgeon's neck and threatened to hang him if he didn't confess. I mean, I would have led with the threat of killing him, but as you know, I'm no lawyer. As for the strict nine supposedly found in Mr. Hodel's body, Meaty's lawyer first presented the events of the evening of his death. Hodel ate a meal with the family and then briefly fell asleep. When he awoke, he was anxious to help Meaty with the chores, so he met her at the water pump and insisted on completing that task for her. He then went to gather some wood at the wood pile. It was while returning to the house that he fell and Meaty rushed to him and asked, Dad, what's the matter? He replied that he felt blind. She then wiped the snow from his face with one of his mittens which had fallen from his hand. Helping him toward the house, he fell again, and she lifted him to his feet. He fell a third time near the door of the house, and Meaty became frightened. Based on that account, the defense then brought up a well-respected doctor who was also the president of the Michigan Medical Society, who stated that Hodel's manner of death did not indicate strychnine poisoning at all. The man would have died in a convulsion had it been strychnine poisoning as related. The convulsions would have been practically continuous and it would have been impossible for him to have walked around and do the work described after the first convulsion. And Penny asked, What would the symptoms described indicate to you? They point to apoplexy, embolism, blood clot, or an acute dilation of the heart. In fact, it might be almost anything except strychnine poisoning. He added that the amount of strychnine found in Hodel's second autopsy, despite what was reported, was nowhere near enough to kill even one man, let alone 12. By the state's own testimony, the doctor said, the amount found wouldn't have even been enough to kill a small animal. He said it was possible that whatever they had found in Hodel's body wasn't poison at all, but was any number of substances that could have easily been mistaken for poison. Further, he said, the autopsy was limited to finding poison, and no effort was made to determine if he had indeed died by natural causes. The defense then brought up two more doctors who were like, bro, no one would be able to drink anything with even a spoonful of strychnine in it. The bitterness would have been a giveaway immediately. And then, just to drop the mic a little louder, under cross-examination, Meaty's lawyer got the prosecution's medical witness to concede that strychnine was a common ingredient in many medicines and tonics. Booyah, as the kids say. 
Apparently, however, the jury did not agree that this basic fact cast enough reasonable doubt to exonerate the defendant, and Meaty was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison after just two hours of deliberation. And then, a couple months later, Alice Dudgeon was found guilty for the murder of Romy. According to the prosecution, quote, Meaty Hodel had put strychnine poison in her husband Romy's coffee, and since he did not die immediately, she clubbed him with a rolling pin. The blow did not kill Romy, so Alice finished the job with the same rolling pin. End quote. That jury only took an hour and 45 minutes to deliberate. Six months later, Lee Dudgeon was also found guilty of complicity in the murder of Romy for hanging him in the barn after he'd been murdered and was sentenced to three consecutive terms of two and a half to 15 years. Herman Dudgeon and Robert Bennett, however, were found not guilty. Two years later, Lee was exonerated at retrial, and at Alice's retrial, the jury couldn't come to a verdict, so they were like, uh, I don't know. I guess you can just, like, leave? And they released her. Alice died only a few years after being released from prison. Meaty's lawyer, on the other hand, missed the appeal filing deadline by one day. Meaty spent the next 26 years in prison. On August 1, 1949, the Muskegon Chronicle published an article calling Meaty a child bride. I mean, she was 20 when she married Romy, so, like, slow your roll there, the Muskegon Chronicle. They also called her pathetic. Meaty released this statement. On August 9, 1922, state troopers John Palmer and George Carkey took me out of my house in White Cloud and driving me up to the Cobb School near Big Rapids forced me, under threat of death and mob violence, to make a confession to the effect that on May 6, 1922, I killed my husband with a rolling pin, and that two months previously I poisoned my father-in-law then staying at my house through the administering of poison. I state here, and I stated during my trial, that I killed neither my husband nor my father-in-law, and that if it had not been for the brutal tortures of the said state policemen, I never would have made a confession of something I didn't do. Furthermore, I wish to state that my husband was extremely jealous, an unstable individual who constantly suspected me of infidelity, although I never gave him any reason. I married him only because I feared him, he being 28 years older than myself. I reiterate again that my husband committed suicide by hanging, partly because of insane jealousy and partly because of his inability to pay a note of $1,800 coming due about a month after his death. Two things. Yes, I know we don't say committed suicide anymore. That was a direct quote from media in 1949. You don't have to DM me about it. And Romy was not 28 years older than Meaty. He was six years older, roughly 28 at the time of his death. At any rate, the prosecutor who'd handled the Dudgeon's cases replied to the statement by saying that whether or not Meaty killed Romy Hodel, there was no way he'd hung himself as evidenced by that blunt force trauma to his head. Nowadays, unsurprisingly, those people who are wont to believe in such things will say that Dudgeon Swamp is haunted. And listen, if bad energy can lead to haunting, it's fair to say this place had its fair share. Honestly, this story certainly has enough fodder for those who believe. Between all the violence and Alice and Meaty's assertions that they'd seen ghosts even before the cops played dress up as them. 
According to the radio station 99 WFMK's website, quote, People say they have witnessed and experienced ghosts and floating apparitions, glowing eyes in the dark, strange noises, bodiless voices, and hangman's nooses in the swamp trees. Those who are brave enough to drive through that area have experienced trouble with their vehicles and many, many, many more incidents, end quote. One dude who was trying to become a successful ghost hunter claimed to have caught a demon staring at him on camera. I watched the video, so you don't have to. Nothing was there. Also, remind me to film myself in my backyard at night with just a flashlight and then edit in spooky music afterward. Another dude posted a wordy tome on Reddit. Honestly, is there any other kind of tome on Reddit? That, heavily truncated because he doesn't have a badass editor like I do, goes something like this. Our destination was an old cemetery tucked back in the swamp. After parking, we stepped out tentatively and peered through the darkness. Fog hung stiff as a corpse in the dead air. Cole swung his flashlight in an arc at the simmering necropolis. Tombstones jutted out of the mud at sagging, distorted angles, like the apocalyptic limbs of a soul whose mortality remained uncertain. The sopping peat was bubbling with moisture beneath our boots. Practically speaking, this was a horrible place for a graveyard. It was a wonder anything stayed buried here. Honestly, if I used this many metaphors, my producer would murder me. We fanned out and combed the graveyard row by row. Our only light came from the dim foxfire glow of our flashlights. Several times I tripped over graves sunken deep in the mire, and I had a good scare when Jared and I crossed paths in the mist. Suddenly, I heard Kevin gasp. We stumbled blindly toward his voice until echolocation led us to a vine-covered mausoleum. Echolocation? The script was crumbling, but the names were unmistakable. Charles and Alice Hodell, the parents. Lee, Wilmer, Herman, Lola, and Meady, their children. I recognized them from the story we'd read online. Perhaps the murders were just a myth, but at least now we knew it had a strain of truth. The characters were real, and they just so happened to be buried here, all together with a rather elaborate monument. I hate to burst this dude's bubble, but both Alice and Meady were buried in Muskegon. And Lee likely was as well. Also, considering that they never even finished building their house, you think they had a mausoleum? Okay. Little more than an ATV trail, our road led deeper into the dungeon. The clawing branches, pond-sized puddles, and sucking mud almost proved too much for Kevin's hapless Ford Focus. I could feel the car floating over the muck in places, wheels spinning madly. These geniuses decided to off-road through a swamp at night in a Ford Focus. Okay. Of course, it was at this time that a monstrous, mud-splattered pickup came blasting out of a side trail, blinding us with its high beams as we passed, and then turning to follow us. Smoke belched out from under its hood, and the diesel knock followed us for miles as we slipped and spun our way down the track. Turning back was no longer an option, and so we had no choice but to follow the artery right to its heart and out the other side. Our trail was petering out, though, and the fog was getting thicker. 
The knocking was getting louder like the rattling death knell from a horror movie, and as the four of us looked at each other uneasily, we were legitimately fearful. We survived, by the way. The same, unfortunately, could not be said for David and Romy Hodel, whose lives were taken somehow by someone or ones at the Dudgeon Swamp. Whether the ghosts did it, or the bad energy in the area made the Dudgeons do it, or the Dudgeons themselves brought the bad energy with them and just, you know, did it, I suppose we'll never really know. But we do know this. Never, ever drive a Ford Focus into a swamp in the middle of the night. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, on a desolate, depressing island in between England and Ireland in the 1930s, a small family received an unlikely visitor that would spark a sensation. Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Since our main feed will be dark next week, we're going to release the video of the latest Strange and Unexplained live show from Obsessed Fest 2023, also covering Jeff the Talking Mongoose, exclusively on our Patreon page. The SNU Patreon gives you three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks, plus some extra goodies. And for just seven bucks, you get the bonus episodes, plus all the regular shows ad-free. Join us over on patreon.com slash strange and unexplained for exclusive content. Then our main feed will be back on December 7th with the full studio version of The Jeff Story featuring some amazing moments from our voice actors. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by the amazing Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research was by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Jordan Kai Burnett, Ryan Garcia, and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, Go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Find us on Instagram at SNUpod and join our Facebook page to join the conversation. If you like our show, please do help us out by rating us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like our show, you can leave a terrible review. The name of the podcast is Unaborted with Seth Gruber.